Okay, so today uh, I'm here with Thomas Brill. My name is Brian Parks. We're having our weekly conversation, and today we're going to have our layman's take on Tao Te Ching, Chapter 7. Uh, let me just read it for you here, folks. Heaven endures. Earth lasts a long time. The reason why heaven and earth can endure and last a long time is that they do not live for themselves. Therefore, they can long endure. Therefore, the sage puts himself in the background, yet finds himself in the foreground, puts self-concern out of his mind, yet finds self-concern in the fore, puts self-concern out of his mind, yet finds that his self-concern is preserved. It is not because he has no self-interest that he is therefore able to realize his self-interest. Okay. More good old Asian double talk. <laughs> well, yeah, first thing that came to mind was chewy, chewy, tootsie rolls, because they last a long time, too, like the earth. <laughs> This I don't true. think they had Tootsie Rolls in, yeah. in all today's time, and I don't think it probably has much to do with Tootsie Rolls, but it might. You never know so, until you analyze it. <laughs> yes. And then it lasts as long as your analyzation is. But, well, uh, no, it lasts longer than that. It does, definitely lingers. Like you said last week, it's the sort of thing that rolls around in your brain for a while. And kind of like eating a Tootsie Roll lasts yeah. a long time. So, um, we start with the, the first line, heaven endures, earth lasts a long time. So, maybe I'm uncivilized, uh, you know, endures and lasts a long time sound like the same thing. I was kind of wondering about that myself, because at, by, by the fourth sentence, they kind of, they kind of converge, and now they both right. long endure, instead of one long, lasts a long time. What I thought was kind of interesting about that, though, is if it's it's almost like scientifically he was 2,000 years ahead of his time because heaven enduring could be taken as heaven has no time frame, kind of. Like, there's no time in heaven. It's right. eternal. Um, not in the religious, or it could be the religious sense, but even in the physical sense. Right. Um, but earth will certainly perish at some point, so it only lasts a long time. That's kind of how I, how, like, one of the thoughts I had when I read that. Or, uh, yeah. You know, the sun's going to burn out and the earth's going to go away, but no one would have known that 2,000 years ago, but still he, like, has this distinction that makes sense to a, would make a lot of sense to a scientist today if you read it that way. Well, right, you know, because, well, I mean, through our human activity, it, it's quite possible we could make the earth uninhabitable for us within the next hundred years of uh, climate change and, and all that sort of thing or uh, depletion of natural resources um, but heaven endures which might include heaven and earth because even if we become extinct earth will go on and barely notice barely miss us because some form of life will continue and flourish and take our place just like we took the place of what came before us, the dinosaurs. Or, so interesting that you say you talk about the Earth possibly self-destructing because of global warming or other human-created conditions. Because I, I read, I don't know, months ago, a couple years ago, that scientists are fairly well convinced that we'll never find life on another planet. Right. Because the window of opportunity is always going to be necessarily really short. Because from the time that we have the capacity to think about and try to find life on another planet until the time that you self-destruct is a really short yeah. window like in especially in in what do you call it like a big bang time or whatever well right well I mean they have a pretty good idea that you know the the planets and, and solar systems that they've been able to look at through uh, you know the space telescope and whatnot none of those are inhabited and, you know, they would take a hundred years, you know, at light speed to get to. So, yeah, you know, and so if it does, life does exist, it's farther out than we've been able to see. And, uh, yeah. By the time their signal reaches our Earth, we'll all be laying in a box. 
Yeah. And there'll be dinosaurs again or something, you know, mindless creatures that have no idea that somebody's trying to reach them. Yeah, Cockroaches. So, yeah, our, all, all our bodies will have coalesced into the next generation of petroleum products <laughs> under the earth. Yeah. Mm. Lovely thought. Yeah. So, uh... I mean, besides that, the other thought I had is I keep kind of banging on the same theory, the theme, but it goes back to the whole idea of the environment being kind of the basic building block of all life. I think that the more I read of this, the more I'm convinced that Tao, that uh, yeah. Tai Ching, what's his name? Ching? Oh, Lao Tzu? Sorry, Lao Tzu. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Right. Uh, yeah, we're definitely not scholars, but, but Lao Tzu was an like the first environmentalist. And this right. whole idea of the way is just getting yourself in touch with all that. Yeah, well, and like you were saying, how, you know, we're only on chapter seven, but, you know, on the days that we do this, those concepts kind of get into, under your skin, and so I'm more aware of some of these things, hmm. sort of in a macro way, not a specific, you know, it's kind of subtle, but I'm aware that I'm aware of something, or, you know, more of nature, you know, how, you know, nature, even though in our life these days we have trouble seeing beyond, you know, human manifestations, but, you know, Nature is still under there somewhere. Well, yeah, nature now is looking at that picture of a sunset that somebody posted on Facebook. Yeah, right, that's nature. Right. For three seconds. <laughs> yeah. Next. Yeah. yeah. Next picture. Or the, meme. You know, or, or, the, or the people that are on there that post something snarky about how they spend so much time outdoors. <laughs> yeah. But they're doing it on Facebook. Right. Yeah, right. Um, and everything they're doing while they're out there in nature is for the purpose of having a nice picture on Facebook. And well, there's a there's a um, a company uh, that has an app called uh, what's it called? Uh, I was just looking at it a little while. Oh, Swarm. And it's one of these apps where you tell everybody that else that has the app where you're at all the time, so you can meet people, I guess, and that sort of thing. But they have a contest. So over the next, I don't know, three weeks or something, you do their little check-in thing at three outdoor places. Okay. You know, to celebrate outdoors, I guess. Right. But of course, where the hell do they have outdoors and Wi-Fi at the same time, you know? Not a whole lot of places. Nowhere I want to be. All right, so we get to the next line. The reason why heaven and earth can endure and last a long time is that they do not live for themselves. Yeah, that's a little bit of a mystery to me. What, the, is that the reason why they endure for a long time? And what would it, what does it even mean? What would it mean to say that earth, heaven and earth live for themselves? Or that they live at all. They're not selves. Or that they live at all. Yeah. You know, because... That would make them one of the 10,000 things instead of, you know, the Tao. The thing that starts the 10,000 things. Right. Yeah. So, so they're, uh, not even th they're not even things, so they have no life. But they do endure and, and last a long time. They do not live for themselves, therefore they can long endure. Well, I think there again... You know, you come back to the short-sightedness of, of human self-interest, you know, that could possibly be the cause of global warming, or scientists say that is the cause of global warming, uh, you know, and, and other things, you know, where, you know, we, we kind of shit in our own nest by, you know, strip mining and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's sort of the, the bigger side of, you know, living for ourselves, instead of living for everything else. Well, except that I think, you know, if you look at any other ecosystem in nature that's not human, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. We're just, like, we just have a different way of doing it. Everybody's just trying to survive, right? Eat, sleep, fuck. So, but they're not going into debt. They're not building big um, structures like tearing down forests, although beavers do a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, everybody's got this kind of same self-interest, in a sense, that we have. 
every animal species, right. even trees, and well, they want to appropriate yeah. them. Well, you know, humans' ability to, to adapt is why we're so successful, and that's why there's seven billion of us, you know, if we weren't so successful at adapting, there would be a more reasonable number of us, and, you know, we wouldn't be creating our own demise. You know, if there were like only a billion people, Earth could probably, you know, shrug off the, the crap that we do. Um, right, unfortunately, part of what we're good at is self-preserving the race, the species, you know, antibiotics or right. other ways that we can prolong people's lives and help them procreate. Right. right. But, of course, that's just one example. Why the heavens and earth can endure and last a long time is they do not live for themselves. So, I think it's trying to introduce the concept of selflessness. Sure. Sure, but I'm tr- I still have a struggle trying to apply that notion to heaven and earth, or to, let's call it, for the sake of the argument, the natural. Take right. away humans from the equation, and heaven and earth are... St- I mean, dep- I guess it depends on how you define... Like, heaven, to me, doesn't really... doesn't live at all. At least on earth, there's living things... Unless you right. count motion as life. Yeah, and, and heaven is probably not referring to outer space. You know, it's probably referring to the ethereal part of existence or our oh. perception. Well, that's an interesting you know, the, take the on spiritual it. or the, you know, that sort of thing. And then earth is the practical place where we live. You know, so that's the two things, the, the practical and the etherical. Yeah, I don't have the other translations. What do they call it? Well, the Lynn translation says the universe is everlasting. Oh, okay. It doesn't say anything about heaven and earth. It just uses one term, the universe. And everybody else uses heaven. Yeah. And the Cleary translation, oddly enough, and the Rayleigh translation, maybe some other ones, heaven is eternal, the earth everlasting. So it's so funny. They keep using these distinctions. Like, there's something different about the two, but but they're both... Well, actually, eternal. Yeah, eternal kind of works a little better for me than endures, because endures sounds like, you know, well, like I said originally, a a long time, and endures sound like the same thing. Right. But you know, forever is more actual. Actually, the kind of feel I get from heaven, either kind of heaven, the the outer space kind of heaven, or the uh, ethereal, spiritual kind of heaven. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it seems like in the other verses that we've read where heaven comes up, it's always heaven and earth. So maybe yeah. maybe this translation of universe is, is a little more kind of the sense of what he's talking about. Yeah, all things, not just earth. Except in verse 5, he says, the space between heaven and earth, is it not like a bellows? That has a definite physical implication of earth as the base and the heavens above, or at least separated, so that you can squeeze them together like a bellows. Well, or the practical, which is earth and ecology and whatnot, and the heavens as far as the spiritual, that also feed together to create like a bellows to create life. You know, because... It's a much more poetic interpretation than my simple physical <laughs> mind allowed. I like it. Well... I like it. You know... However you look at it, uh, there is a definite distinction between what humans do and what the rest of the world is doing. That's non-human. Right. No matter what time you live in. Ever since right. at least agrarian societies. I mean, there may have been a time when human life was much more in balance with the rest of the surroundings. And people right. were just kind of hunter-gatherers and out there throwing their spear. That's still a tool. But yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and then you know, the invention of agriculture was an adaptation that we did. Right. That created, that started the ball rolling of there being so damn many of us. And, uh, you know, because, you know, we, we had, you know, would live feast and famine. You know, we would find a place where there was food growing and we would all eat and fuck and, and, you know, have a great time and then the food would run out. Then we have to wander off somewhere else looking for more food. And, 
you know, so that was, you know, that was kind of our start. That, that's kind of what our bodies are designed to do. Well, but, I can say this. When I take over as president of the New World Order, my first rule is going to be to outlaw agriculture. So that will return us all to those <laughs> halcyon days. Of, yeah. Well. I mean, at least globally, it was more rewarding. Maybe not individually, but... Well, yeah, you know, I mean... Less destructive. You know, well, you know, and that is also another reason that, that we're so, humans are so successful is we have this intense drive for not even our just our individual selves, but as all humans have to survive. And that's, you know... Yeah, animals can't see past their noses, basically, in that, right. in that sense. They want to eat, they want to live, they, just, just a very basic survival instinct. We've come up with ways to help, not guarantee, but at least minimize the, the really bad things that can happen when you're out in nature and there's scary creatures with big fangs running around right next to you. Right. Where a rabbit can just run as fast as it can run and then it either gets plucked or it doesn't. Yeah. And if an owl comes flying out of the air, it's in big trouble because you can't even see the damn thing. I'm glad we don't have to deal with those kind of challenges. That would be kind of annoying. If you're on your way to work, all of a sudden you're plucked out of the middle of the road in, in some creature's mouth. So if we picture the heavens and earth like that bellow, bellows of the practical and the ethereal, the spiritual and the practical, creating life, you know, so that so that, yeah they don't live for themselves they live for that that function to you know or that's one of their functions at least is is a you know creating of life well there's certainly you could certainly say maybe not certainly you can say that the universe is indifferent to life and the heavens and the earth are indifferent right. to our life and to all life even when we're destroying the earth it's Essentially, the Earth itself is in, doesn't have emotions. It's not crying. It's just dying. Well, the Earth itself, we'd have to do a lot more than global warming just to kill the Earth. You know, itself, or the life on Earth. You know, it, it'll kill us off, and then the damage will stop. Right. And a million years later, it's like we were never here. Right. So. But, and the Earth is indifferent to that to our plight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I can. I mean, in that sense, yeah, they, they live. They don't live for themselves. They. Just well, live. but then that's what heaven is for: is to balance that indifference with difference, <laughs> De deference. Hmm. And how explain that part? Well, the the, the spiritual so, heaven, right? The spiritual kind of heaven, right? As you know, so yeah. So the earth is just this collection of, of molecules, right. and so and so life happens somewhere in the ocean in the primordial soup, as they call it. And you know, the, we can we can do a whole series of podcasts on what that was and how that happened. Yeah, but um, first lightning strike and the worm goes. Yeah. So you know, but you know whatever. Whatever happened there in the primordial soup got repeated, and it couldn't have just been those inert molecules, you know, alone that made that happen. So, so we have some other force combined together with all the nutrients and whatnot in the soup, creating life and more life, and then it builds over millions of years to what we have now. But it, but it. You know, it lasts all that time, and so you could think of it as limitless, or you could think of it as limited. We don't know because we haven't got to the end of one or the other yet. But it's because, well, supposedly, according to this, it's because they do that. They don't, you know, they don't create themselves. They create, you know, our world. And I'm not sure how the connection is that they that, that is why they endure. Right. Um, just because he says so, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we accept it. 
and move on. We accept it because we must. That's where yeah. faith comes in. Well, and, you know, and just like this brings a little more meaning to that bellows thing in the other chapter, and maybe something in a further on will make more sense out of this. Yep. So let's go to the next part. Therefore the sage. And we still haven't figured out who the sage is exactly. Is he a leader or is he just a thinker or what? Puts himself in the background that finds himself in the foreground. Now if the sage here is just anybody who takes on the sort of challenge of the Tao, De Jing, puts himself in the background. And of course, all this stuff so far has been talking about all of this from a, a, a third perspective as you're watching all of this going on. But if you, so you put yourself in the background, you're watching, you're observing, you're experiencing, but you end up finding yourself in the foreground by doing that. I think that's what I was talking about. Just having this stuff in my head is putting, making more, making more, making more present, making me more present. Okay. Um, so the foreground you think is just uh, of your own life, not because I I've read this as implying that he's in the foreground of some society. Right. Right. Yeah. But you could read it the other way too. It could just be in the foreground in a more spiritual or self sense, even though right. the next lines are about putting self-concern aside, but without even meaning to, just by being, get, letting the flow flow through you the way you're supposed to, then you get into the foreground of something, which I immediately assumed meant, in a we very Western way of thinking, the yeah. foreground of you know, society. You're now the, uh, you are now a leader, but yeah. maybe not. It's well, not necessarily just, implied by being in the foreground. Yeah, it just means a participant. A participant, like I was saying, finds yourself in the foreground. You know, you're observing this stuff and, and all that. And all of a sudden, your perception changes a little bit. And all of a sudden, you're, you're in the mix. Right. I like that interpretation. It's like, you uh, know, it's a way of... Um, well, you're just part of it. You, you, right. You, by sitting back and letting it become you or whatever, then you become part of it. So. Yeah. So it puts himself in the background, yet finds himself in the foreground. Puts self-concerned out of, out of, and then it's in the brackets. Yeah. Yet finds self-concern in the foreground. What does it have in the other translations where that has brackets here? Reckons himself out, but finds himself safe and secure. Huh. Uh, let's see. Hmm. Treats it as extraneous to himself, and it is preserved. Is not? It yeah. is, is it not? Yeah. Okay. And so he puts himself away, and yet he always remains. Uh, actually, this translation, Hendrick's translation, is the only one that repeats this idea twice about putting self-concern out of his mind. Oh. And then in one instance finds self-concern in the four, and in the second instance finds that self-concern is preserved. Most of them only do make one statement about that. Like, okay. the sage place, I mean, uh, he puts himself away, and yet he always remains. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. Puts himself in the background, oh, remains outside, but is always there. That's the only sentence in the Whaley translation that translates both of these sentences. Right. Regards his body as accidental, and his body is thereby preserved. That's the Lynn translation, very, very different. Yeah. And they exclude themselves, and they survive. It is not because he has no self-interest. So he is therefore able to realize his self-interest. Well, okay, so we, so we need to kind of do, figure out what self-concern is and self-interest. 
Well, yeah, first the self-concern, which... If, I mean, if you literally put self-concern out of your mind, you would die. If you did that to the extreme and didn't even think about eating, because some part right. of self-concern is you have to eat. Maybe. Maybe there's yeah. a different word for that. Maybe it's, self maybe it's a survival, I don't know. Or, well, or they could just be talking again about being in the background, observing. It isn't that you let all your responsibilities to yourself go. It's just that, you know, that's not in the foreground of your mind. So that's self concern out of well, his mind. Let's look at it this way. What would the... Uh, I'm trying to think of the word, the... the False sage, let's say. What would the false sage do? The false sage would try to get people to follow him. He would be probably a big mouth. You know, he would be boasting about everything. Right. So if you just contrast that with what you know the ideal sage would do, maybe the self-concern is just concern for being in the foreground, concern for being the leader. That sort of self-concern, more like, what is your social status? Yeah. In that sense, as opposed to, like you said, just a very basic, fundamental survival. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking what I'm, where it comes to my mind is uh, meditation. And you know, okay, you know, one thing you do with meditation is practice letting go of ego, and so you sort of are exist, you know, without thought, ideally which is really hard for me. I've meditated for so many years, but it's still a struggle. But, uh, but I know from, from doing that, when it works, everything else does sort of come in, and it gives you perspective, or gives, you know, gives me perspective on myself that... You know, I didn't have before. So, you know, to, so of course, because that's something I do. That's why that got to me first. Well, it makes yeah. sense too. But uh, putting concern out of mind finds itself concern is preserved, which is weird because if you put your self concern out of mind. Yet finds self concern in the foreground. Self out of his mind. Yet finds his self concern preserved. Then what's the point? <laughs> you know, if it's gonna, if it's there in both instances, you know, all, all four times self concern is in these two sentences. They all seem to add up to not much. Almost <laughs> a syllogism or something. Yeah. Almost nonsensical, right? Yeah. But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean something, because, you know, that's... <laughs> well, this is a treatise, if it's nothing else, about how you should try to live, right? How you should... Right. And so, if you are... Even if the natural result of putting self-concern out of your mind is that self-concern will somehow emerge anyway, mm -hmm. which seems kind of like an irony or, or illogical or whatever, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. Right. Like you said, when you meditate and you kind of let the world fill you with whatever wisdom it has, then you emerge from that with a stronger person, more maybe more... Yeah. Um, have a relationship to the society around you. So, right. Although specifically, the idea of self-concern seems to be a selfish idea. Right. And I almost made a connection here between what they say in the first sentences and the second set of sentences, as far as heaven and earth can endure and last a long time, and they do not live for themselves. And putting self-concern out of your mind is kind of not living for yourself. So, doing so, putting self-concern out of your mind, yet finds self-concern in the four. It's still there, 
but you do have a you know more and, and so maybe when it says self-concern is preserved maybe it maybe it's talking about is you know kind of dealt with I don't know this one's confusing me finds himself at the head of others reckons himself out but finds himself safe and secure okay well. that's another translation but finds himself safe and secure um, treats it as extraneous to himself and it is preserved huh that's speaking of this person treats his person as extraneous to himself and his person is preserved that's a little bit of a different take yeah, on it yeah yeah because that, that, that goes back to the whole thing of, of being part of the Tao and being part of you know the whole heaven and earth cycle and another one the Chan translation he puts himself away and yet he always remains that's a little more along those lines so uh, Hendrix is the only one that uses self-concern they ex the sages excluded themselves and they survived. Right. He is de detached. Thus at one with all. So, yeah. Okay. It's, it's, maybe self-concern is throwing you off where it's really that whole, just that same idea of the detachment that leads right. to engagement. Right. Which is kind of how you were talking about with meditation and kind of what with the heavens and the earth. Right. There's right. a sense of detachment, but there's certainly plenty of engagement with heaven and earth. Yeah, okay. Is, it is not that he has no self-interest, that he... No, is that's there. a question. Is it not oh. because he has no self-interest that he is therefore able to realize his self-interest? Well... I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess the the lines before that say yes, but yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of an unfair question to ask right after you tell the answer. <laughs> right. But that this is what I would call one of those "fuck you" lines. It's like, <laughs> come on, give me a break. Yeah. And again, it seems like it's a, it's the same way using the term self-concern creates a, a tension that seems to be irreconcilable. Okay, so, so does self-interest. If you're saying, is it not because you have no self-interest that you realize your self-interest, then it's like if you know that not having self-interest will help you realize your self-interest, then you can't not have self-interest because by not having it, you're necessarily trying to promote it. You know what I'm saying? Like if you understand yeah, yeah. what this is saying... Yeah, that's a standard thing in a, in a lot of Asian ones. Is letting go of yourself, but how can you be yourself and let go of yourself at the same time? And yeah, you end up this vicious cycle... Of, uh, of yourself. It's kind of like you're pretending not to have any self-interest because you know in the end that that will help you get self-interest. <laughs> right. Which yeah. is not at all what I'm sure the idea is behind. Well, you know, they've, they've studied altruism and there are many scholar types that say it doesn't exist. Yeah. There's always a payday in the end somewhere that you're consciously or subconsciously looking at. If, it, if it's nothing but, you know, the, the dose of... Uh, endorphins you get from being kind <laughs> um, so uh, yeah so this talks back so so the sage if you picture the sage is not just not a you know a specific leader but just a person you know that's seeking this kind of Tao awareness so you're in your little community or your family or whatever your, your social group is or whatever. Right. And if you're paying attention to the whole and not the not yourself, well then yourself gets carried along and taken care of anyway. Um, you know, I mean that's that's kind of the, the base the basis of how all tribal societies survived is that everybody worked with a whole group, you know, they don't have a lot of records of people being selfish with their other tribe mates or little communities like that. Yeah, well, I think 
if you look at it just from a kind of a Darwinian point of view, it makes more sense to do that when you're with the same people all the time. Yeah. There's going to be more of a bond and more of a sense of kinship, and so more of a desire for group preservation. Now, right. how do you apply something like this to the fractured and multicultural society that we live in, where even though there's still that self-preservation instinct that at least applies to your, for the most part, to your families and your, your kin, at least. But when you're in a society where the interaction is all kind of based on me, 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 and self, 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 yeah. um, is that, would this still hold true? Because you can't really ignore your own self-interest in this society or you get crushed, probably. I mean, that's just, right. kind of, maybe that's a very cynical take on things, but... Right. Is there a place for the sage in, modern, in the modern world if that's what the sage has to do? Yeah. Have no self-interest. Right. Well, I think of... Um, you know, a lot of times people are... I think of a grandmother that had a bunch of children and has all these grandchildren and she's one of these people that has been sort of selfless mothering of people for decades. She doesn't have to worry about catastrophe. Somebody's going to come and take care of her, you know, unless it's just really horrible. Right. It takes them out too, whatever it is, you know. And so, you know, on a, on a personal level like that, being engaged with you know, and, and working for and not living for yourself, the combination of heaven and earth will carry you along. So, yeah, it can happen, but for some reason, our particular society is really focused on this individuality, which has its advantages, but I, yeah, I don't think it's part of the natural world. I think it's a an adaptation that may not be the best thing. So then going back to the sage question, is there a place for the sage in that type of society? I don't know. I mean, I guess there is. Or is the sage the same thing as it used to be? Or is it now the self-serving carnival barker? Yeah. Well... That has no substance. I mean, you know, I'm saying that kind of, obviously, facetiously, but... Yeah, right. So, yeah, how does this apply to just your normal urban dweller of the 21st century. Well, yeah, we're, is there, when there's so many loud and really obnoxious voices clamoring for attention, can you really survive if you put aside your self-interest? Can you really thrive, not survive? And I guess on an individual, personal level, you yeah. probably can very well if you can overlook all that stuff and throw right. out all the media you know, promises that if you drink the right beer, you're going to have big-breasted women throwing themselves at you. <laughs> right. And you know, and a lot of times, as an example, they'll throw out somebody like Maya Angelou that, to appearances, you know, lived for other people, and yet, you know, she was loved and li lived a long time and stuff. But I'm a little cynical about that because in order for her to be that she was a hell of a self-promoter you know <laughs> well that's kind of the same thing I'm saying yeah and and actually Mother Teresa that was her big skill is self-promotion okay I mean she, you know she but there are a lot of people that did the actual physical helping people in India and other places but she's the one we all know about <laughs> because she was into self-promotion huh. but you know so there's institutions set up you know, like the nunhood, or whatever they call it, where, you know, you become a selfless person and, you know, live for the greater whole, you know, you and your husband Jesus hanging out, having mojitas, but, uh, but without an institution to make that work, you know, does it, does it happen in nature? So, I mean, if you can take it to the other extreme, you're a sage, you know, you've read this book and you're into it, and, and you know, you just get plopped down out in the forest somewhere. Right. You know, is it going to really work for you there? Well, not in the short term, but now, you know, my, my situation is that 
I find, you know, I've got a situation where I'm, I'm sort of dependent on everybody else. And uh, so I find, uh, well, kind of like serendipity all the time, keeping me going along just enough to get by. And, you know, I'll, sometimes I have to look for it, you know, and push for it, but sometimes it just happens. And, you know, I think that has to do with this thing of when you let go of yourself and just listen. Okay. Um, so, you know, I mean, my view is just my interpretation of what happens to me. It's hard to say if it's reality for me, but, you know, I think that that's kind of what they're talking about here, though. You know, uh, I think uh, some versions of Christians and other theistic religions, you know, the phrase, um, let go and let God, is right. still something that a lot of people believe in. And I think that's kind of what they're saying here. Well, yeah, certainly in, in mainstream Christianity, that's what people are told to do. Obviously, a lot of people believe that what they're really doing is God is helping them achieve their self-interest. Right. <laughs> but yeah. it's clear from the theology itself that that's not what God does. God has his own little plan and right. it might, might be good for you and it, <laughs> you might end up in the belly of a whale. So just right. shut up and take it. But people tend to, you know, obviously, and then there's the whole uh, wealth theology kind of branch of right. Christianity, which is right. kind of the ultimate... American expression of religion. Right. Lovely. Right. Believe in God and you'll get rich. That's kind of the extreme example right. of that. Well, you know. Selfish theology. Selfish And that's, you know, a lot of people that, that, that do hypnosis, you know, they sell those self help things where people want to get rich. Yeah. You know, and I just have never been able to do that. I mean, if somebody comes to me and they want to get a better job or you know, change their life in some way, well, I can help with that. But, yeah, the wealth thing is too specific, for one thing, for it to work. And, yeah, and and it, it doesn't, it takes you out of the mix, right? This, this is talking here about letting yourself be in the mix, observing the mix, but also letting yourself kind of float along with it. And your self-interest gets preserved. What is yeah, that means. just to dig a little bit deeper? What is self-interest? What does that mean? Does that mean? I mean, I guess, I guess different people could have different interests. But what, what does that even mean? Self-interest? Does it mean making lots of money? Does it mean just surviving? Does it mean being a leader? I wonder. I guess everybody's interests are different. But is self-interest something that you can kind of put your hands on and define somewhere? Uh, yeah, selfishness, greed. Uh, whatever the opposite of well uh, except that in the same way altruism has a selfish basis I think some people would not be greedy because they recognize that in the long run that could be destructive to their self interest you know right. what I'm saying like if you're if you're thoughtful about it you probably recognize that being a greedy bastard is just going to get you lots of enemies and you'll have a miserable life right and that's all you care about is, is money and you really don't give a shit about people so self interest right. could be a different it could be really different for different people right well, yeah, yeah, self and, and kind of oddly, let's say that your self-interest is in being altruistic because you realize that you get rewards from that. Right. Should you put that aside? I don't know. It's, it's some, it really raises some interesting questions if you kind of scratch away the surface right, of right, right, self-interest, right. which I've, we've both just been kind of assuming it means a certain thing, but what is it? Yeah, your self-interest. Well, you have your basic survival instinct. That's obviously so that's, going to be part of so it for almost is, anyone. That is the hardcore center of, of self-interest, is your basic survival. But then you have that beyond your, your survival, you have your expectations. And I guess for most people that would include like a com you know, comfort. Comfort and yeah, things and like maybe that. Maybe lots of goodies, phones and cars and houses. And but on the other end of it, it could, you know, I mean, the, the Buddhist thing... You know, the main theme of Buddhism is to minimize suffering 
and suffering is basically expectations. And so, if you're yourself, you have can have a self-interest of not suffering, which you know is not the same, quite the same thing as your self-interest of wanting more abundance than other people have. Okay. Um, so the speaking of Buddhism, it's one of the that's probably my least favorite philosophy slash religion because I hate that idea that, that life is meant to be avoiding suffering I just hate that idea it seems to me that life would be pointless then if that's all you're really trying to do as opposed to, because I'm really a sensualist so I absolutely believe that life is about experiencing pleasure as much as you can it's called being a hedonist but yes okay well, I, I'm not a total hedonist I'm a responsible guy with a job and yeah. life and, you know, I know I know had my hedonistic moments but right but I just believe that so I, whenever you start talking about Buddhism it's a really I get like a more visceral emotional reaction than I do to almost anything well not, not really like totally well, but it's kind of just strikes me as being ugly right well I don't know about ugly but it's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it strikes me as being ugly. I'm saying. Yeah, okay. that's how it strikes me. Right, right. So avoiding suffering and stopping suffering are different things. Minimizing suffering, you know, because you're never going to eliminate it. Right. Because another precept of, of Buddhism, you know, is the the balance of yin and yang. So. You know, suffering is is in that mix, and suffering is is something a lot of times you have to go through in order to you know get to a, another place, another another positive place. But you know, when Buddhists talk about ending suffering, a lot of times you know it's quite literal. It's like people that don't have water to drink, or food to eat, or right. shelter. Right. You know, very practical kind of suffering that there's really no need for. You know, and then there's the other kind of suffering, which is people that, well, we're talking about the, whatever the opposite of altruism is, the uh, meterism, but um, a lot of people suffer because they don't have the latest Cadillac, and that's totally sort of useless kind of suffering too. As long as they're getting to whatever destination it is, right. you know, what right. difference does it make? Um, you know, so there's, you know, all manner of suffering, and I, I don't, I don't think they promote the idea of, of removing suffering from the equation, just lessening its effects. Well, I guess that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. For another day. But I, that's, it's, I would like to discuss at some point in my life. But we'll have to do that as our second round. Okay. Yeah, we'll take on Buddhism and you can okay. tell me why I'm wrong. Well. Um, yeah, well, maybe we can get an interview with the Dalai Lama. He can explain it to you. <laughs> yeah, or Lao Tzu. But, uh, yeah. The spirit of Lao Tzu. But, uh, okay, so, yeah, so, we, so we start with the heaven and earth and how they can endure, because they do not live for themselves, therefore they can live long endure. And then we have... The sage who puts himself in the background yet finds himself in the foreground. Letting go of his self-concern helps him find his self-concern. Letting go of his self-concern lets his self-concern be preserved, which kind of confuses me. I'm not sure what is preserved means. Maybe the other translations. Well, no, the other translations use one sentence to translate both of those two sentences. Oh, okay. Hendrick is actually being very right. He separated one idea analytical in a different way. All right. It is not because he has no self-interest. Therefore, right. So why would we think he has no self-interest? Because <laughs> we're just talking about yeah. They use self-concern and self-interest interchangeably, and. Yet they, they do have slightly different connotations. Self-concern is kind of worrying about yourself, and self-interest has more relates to like goals. I would say that's inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. So, 
But I think overall, to summarize my okay. understanding of this particular chapter, yep. the idea is pretty much the same ideas we've seen throughout the first six, which is the more that you can put aside the, let's call it, human, and just kind of feel the natural, the more you're going to be in touch with the human. Right. I, I, I very succinct, succinctly summarize the whole idea right right there. Just yeah. you, you get in the flow, and when you get in the flow, in the moments, in the, the times that you are able to communicate with what I'll call the flow, the Tao, the nature, whatever you want to call it, right. are the times when you definitely are not thinking about anything, really. You have to free your mind of everything. Right. And the result of that process is that your mind is actually better able to do the things that you needed to do, which might include being self-interested and self-concerned. But, it, but you're right. doing them in what you might call a healthy way instead of some, the greedy way or the, you know, maybe that way you come out to be the altruistic, self-interested person. Right. That's sort of my, my take on this chapter. Right. I like it. Yeah. I like okay. it more now than since we talked about it. Okay. How about you? Well, okay, so uh, heaven endures, earth lasts a long time. Chewy, chewy. Oh, no. Um, we covered that. We covered that. Um, we covered the Tootsie Rolls. Yeah, this comes back to the, the, the thing of the heaven and earth being a bellows and being selfless. And because they're the kind of a source and not an end in itself, they're able to endure. And it kind of reflects that in the same thing in the next paragraph, where you sort of become a source or an, an objective observer, and then that allows you to have perspective and sensitivity to not just nature, but yourself and what you really are. Definitely. And so letting go of your self-interest I think doesn't really, you know, I mean, there's the selfish self-interest, and then there's just generic day-to-day self-interest. And I think if you let go of your day-to-day self-interest, depending on your situation, you know, you'll be fine. And a lot of times you'll create anxiety for yourself of, you know, because you want more when that's, you know... You know, for you to breathe in and out and get to the next day, you know, you don't really need more. It'd be nice, but... And, uh, of course, that just doesn't go into all that. But I think it has to do with the same thing of of not living for yourself, you know, living for the... You know, living from your awareness of, of, of more than yourself. That's kind of what I think this one's talking about. Good. All right, so that was Chapter 7. Next time we will talk about Chapter 8 or something else. And uh, I'll bring the Tootsie Rolls. Yes. And please subscribe in iTunes.